Right. <laughs> Sometimes this stuff actually isn't very funny. Um, <laughs> all right, so I'd love to comment real quickly, and I don't remember if when we talked about Jesus being the living water, if I told this, so I'm going to just very quickly, uh, just this morning, it struck me, um, uh, and I wanted to reference it before I jump into the, the main topic, but uh, when I got to go, the very first time I got to go to Israel, and there was a guy who was a guide, and he took us to a pool, um, which was in the uh, valley, um, no, not the Valley Villa, in... Um, Angedi, thank you. He took us to Angedi, which is where, um, which is what Solomon relates to his bride and or the bride to Solomon that they are like Angedi to them. And it's in the middle of just as dead a place in the world as you can possibly be. And there's this lush green and these pools and. It's very beautiful. And the guide said, like, these pools, like, he took us to a pool where no one else was. And it was like, he's like, this is a pool that's really open to us. And he taught about living water and how Jesus Christ was a living water and, and how living water is water that moved and all that kind of stuff. And it was just a beautiful thing. And he said, um, he goes, so feel free. Let's just take him in and kind of experience this, experience that water. And, and what happened was we all, like, took our shoes, our boots off, and we kind of went over and we, like, put our foot in the water and that kind of stuff. And and he goes like, that's the problem right there. And he called us all back and he was like, that's the problem. I just told you that Jesus Christ is a living water and you're in the middle of the desert and here you have this available to you. And what you did is you took off your shoes and dipped your toes in. And he goes, it seems like what we do is this. And, what, and of course, I think he'd emptied his pockets and that kind of stuff. But fully dressed, he just turned and went like this and just laid out in this pool. He's like, that would be the Christian life. So I would say, Josephine, are you down there? Feel free to continue to fully embrace what God is doing. So thank you for leading us in that way. That is a, that's a beautiful thing. We need that type of leadership and um, uh, to, to just completely embrace what God is revealing in that moment. So I appreciate your leadership in that. Um, okay, so not that that's required, right? I mean, you do it. You can make it however you want, but you can, uh, you know. But the, um, that's a, that was just, that's a beautiful thing to see, especially a child of God uh, embrace what he's teaching us. We, we, we teach about the church, which is what I'm doing these couple of weeks, because as we've talked about the idea of the Jesus being the good shepherd, coming from that and saying like, well, then what does it mean to follow him? I mean, if he's our shepherd, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a part of his flock? And so thought, just like kind of we did with feasts and festivals, it took a couple of weeks to talk about that. We take a couple of weeks and talk about that flock, his church. So today, um, the thesis that I kind of developed was the idea that we are his and that's what it means to be the church, <laughs> is that we are his. Now, there's a blank there that's meant to be kind of clever so that you're throwing in there all the different things that the Bible tells us it means. We are his what? And so there's, there's dozens of things in Scripture that the church is. We are his ambassadors, and we are his citizens, and we are his hands and feet, and we are his fragrance, and we are his light, and his and living water, and all those different things, right? So um, that's, that's the idea. So today I'm focusing on the word we. Um, the we of we are his. And so when I talk about we and the we are, this is, a <laughs> this is a tough conversation for us to have as Christians, largely because of, of kind of what we were just seeing in the video, is that, is that we're not good at we. Um, uh, we. We need each other. We require each other. We're kind of a pack animal. So at every level, we need each other, but we don't really like each other very much. We don't get along well. It's hard to get along with another person, especially for any extended period of time. So we simplify this idea of church by making it a place, which of course it isn't. If, if this place got sold and it became a barbecue stand, then it would no longer be a church. The place is not what makes this. The location, the building does not make it a church. It is, it is the people of 
Christ, the we of the we are his that makes it a church. And if we met someplace else, that would be where church met. Right now, this is where church meets. We are so blessed um, to get to have this opportunity. Um, but what struck me as I was thinking about talking about this, one of the things that the we-ness of the church that struck me, one of my favorite books, and, and outside of scripture, um, the most impactful book in my Christian life is the book Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, part of it is its psychological value in addition to its spiritual value and its theological value. Um, but, but the concept, if you've not read it, the concept is that, that Tape Letters is a series of letters, 20-something letters, written by a demon named Tape to another demon named Wormwood. And we don't get Wormwood's responses or anything. We just get Screwtape's writings. And Screwtape is an older, more experienced demon. And he is teaching the younger demon how to destroy the life of a human being. And so these letters are guiding him on how to do that, how to destroy that life. Well, between letter one and letter two, the patient, the person who, who Wormwood is destroying, becomes a Christian. And so between letter one and letter two, he becomes a Christian. Screwtape is not pleased by this, obviously. But so he sends a letter, and here's part of what he writes. Now, this is written now 70, 80 years ago. So you're going to have to update some of the language as I read through it. But the concepts, I think, you will very much so identify with. So in the letter, the first letter to Wormwood after the conversion of the patient, Screwtape says... One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. In other words, there's a half-finished building on the property. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. See, before you come to the church, we're the very kind of people you don't want to be around, right? I mean, we're we're those people until you're one of us. You want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between the expressions like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sings out of tune, have boots that squeak, or a double chin, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion therefore must somehow be ridiculous. At the present stage, you see he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which is in fact largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that other people in the church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. 
So though you may not have that image in your mind of togas and sandals or whatever, or you, we may not have tried to hand you a book of liturgy and a hymn book right when you walked in, every place has liturgy and it's always weird. If, you've, if, you've, if you're not a church person, if you just step outside of being a church person and you watch what we do on a Sunday morning, it's flat strange. That we're here on Sunday morning is flat strange. If you, like, why would you do that? Um, years ago, Pike and I taught a series called Weird Things Christians Do. And we tried to explain why, the, why we do the weird things that we do. Guys, I'm just curious, how many other places do you go stand next to your wife and your family and sing? At a common occurrence for you? Because it ain't for me. It's not something that we normally do. It's, that, that's the kind of thing you get up early in the morning and, and wear specific clothes, although we try to be pretty casual about it. The irony is, now that becomes the uniform, Right? So we don't wear, I love that one of the things he showed was like, there's still a uniform for every one of the denominations, right? E- even though it's like, oh, you don't wear a suit anymore. No, we wear casual, whatever you want. Okay, so in other words, this. That's the new uniform. So now everybody wears a button-up shirt and jeans and, and whatever shoes you want. to. Like, oh, well, now that's the uniform. Like, it's, it's crazy. We as humans, we do this. It's hardwired into us. Well, if you're new to all of this and you're looking around going, Wow, that's the guy who was rude to me at the checkout stand the other day. Or wow, that's the guy who I was waiting the table on the other day and he didn't tip me very well. Or wow, that's the person who cut me off in traffic on the way to church just this morning and stole the parking spot from me. Like that is a, and immediately you go, man, this whole, because that person is, has got these foibles or these vices or these problems or this immorality, this whole thing is just a big joke. It's so easy to go there. I can't believe, and in today's world, all of that is secondary or tertiary or 50th down the line to go, that's the person that posted that on their social media yesterday. The, everything about them must just be a big joke. And, and so that's, we get stuck in the, in the midst of this today because now we know way too much about what each other thinks um, because of that kind of stuff. We, we do that and it's so hard for us to get along with each other. Here's what's wild. When you consider what we do on Sunday morning is all these people coming together and we have almost nothing in common. I mean, a few things, but not, not really all that many. Our, our, think about if you took everybody together and tried to make one trait that we all have in common other than our location right now, you probably wouldn't find much. Ethnicity wouldn't do it, background wouldn't do it, family wouldn't do it, socioeconomic stuff wouldn't do it, gender and sex wouldn't do it, none of those things would do it. And and politics wouldn't do it, none of it would do it. Here's what's wild, what kind of week you had. You realize we come here on Sunday morning, and for some of you, this was a great week. Man, you're, 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 you, just, you just got done yesterday and you're, or today, depending on how you want to fight about it. Like, this is either the first or last day of the week, depending on who you are. And so it's like, this is, man, I've had a great week. Or this week was a total train wreck. This last season was awesome and fun and celebratory. Or it was horrible and tragic and dark. And, and that's, so this week, so for example, we celebrated our 25th anniversary last Sunday, and, and then this week we went um, for a couple of days down to Houston, and we got to speak at a marriage conference, and it was a lot of fun. It's just, it was great to, it's always, well, you know, because so, I mentioned before, it's so fun to go somewhere and find God already at work before you get there, and, and, and uh, even in Houston, God is at work and doing mighty things. And, and when you get to see, the, the meet new Christians and engage with them, and, and just the bond of believerhood that's right there, I mean, just in 10, 15 minutes you're going like, if we lived in the same town, we would be friends. Like, that would be there. Now, we don't, so we're never going to get a chance to be till heaven, but we would be. We, we totally would hang out. Um, or, or getting the chance, which just for us to totally both get to geek out 
Um, so the church where I was speaking is on NASA Road, like it's six minutes from there. And, and so half the people who go to that church are NASA engineers. And so the pastor said, do you want a tour of NASA while you're down here? I'll get one of the engineers to show you around. Not a tour guide, just one of the engineers who's been there since the early 80s. And so he's giving us a tour around. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I, I grew up with the, um, the behind-the-scenes tour being a, an almost universal experience for me because my dad was a parks and recreation guy, a forestry professor. So everywhere we went, my dad knew the right language to unlock the doors, who to talk to, and half the time they were his students anyway from some time in the past. We went all around the country, and we would get to do that. And you just, we, I mean, I just, most people don't know to even ask, hey, is there a way to get behind the scenes and see some cool stuff? And it's amazing how many people can go, actually, yeah, let me show you. Give me a few minutes while I'll get off. I'll, well, they set us up with this engineer. So I'm just literally, guys, I got to spend about 20 minutes in, in, the, in the cockpit of the training module for the shuttle, for the space shuttle, with the guy who designed the training cockpit for the shuttle. Let me just tell you, he had a lot to talk about. It was everything in there. was. He knew where the reason for every single little thing in there. I only got about 20 minutes up there with him, just the two of us because it's tiny. And it was, it was, I was just soaking it all in. It was such a cool experience. That's my week. To go away for, an, for a weekend, for a couple of days away, and, and get to hang out with the family all week during most of a week off and then all this time of stuff. And meanwhile, I'm getting three texts during those three days of people going, hey, so in, you need to know so-and-so's mother died. Hey, you need to know this person's father died yesterday. We show up on Sunday morning, and we've had totally different weeks. And yet we're supposed to come together. That has nothing, I mean, our coping mechanisms, the way we're raised and the, what we believe and all that type of stuff, those are all very different. So how do we create a sense of we from that? Because there is no uniformity among us. It's such a different thing. For 2,000 years, at least, the church has been dealing with this. Um, when I said I was going to talk about this, I sent out a letter, an email to a few different pastors. I know one of them, who, one of them you know, Gary Brandenburg. Um, many of you know him. He sent one something back saying, please don't answer all the questions that no one's asking. That's what most people do when they teach on churches. They answer all these questions that no one is asking these questions. Because the questions right now people are asking is, how do we get along as a church when we don't agree on things? When we don't agree on much at all sometimes, but we're supposed to come together and be a church, how are we supposed to do that? He goes, that's a question now that's been haunting the church for a long time. What do we do now in a country where the cozy relationship between the government and the church is essentially gone and is, if what is left is going? How do we live out church the next 20 years? What does that look like? But this, a lot of this stuff isn't new, and that certainly isn't new. In fact, having the cozy relationship was new and weird. Not having the cozy relationship is the way all Christians have experienced it throughout most of Christian history. But listen to this. Almost every letter, and maybe every letter, that Paul wrote to different churches, he talked about the importance of unity. Unity is a vital theme within the church. But I just told you there's almost nothing unifying us, so how do we do that? Listen to how important. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Romans 12.4, for as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body, and individually members of one another. Philippians 2.1, which some of you have memorized. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any sympathy and affection, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. 
I'll reference Ephesians 4 in just a second. Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, and if, if one has complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I like that word, harmony. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the author and, uh, uh, from Germany during World War II, he thought that churches should all sing melody. We should all sing the exact same note when we sing as a picture, an example of the fact that we are unified. I think singing in harmony does a better job of showing that than melody does. I think us singing in the, in the voice that God has given us, but singing the same song, even more powerfully exemplifies that. I think that's part of what it is to, for us to be a church, is that we are not uniform. We are merely, or we are, unified. Unified, not uniformity. We aren't the same. We aren't all the same in what we do, what we believe, where we come from, and as I said, even the week we just had. What we all are is unified in some way. What is it? Here's some examples. We are unified by being foreigners. We're unified by being strangers in a strange land. We're unified in this. This is not our home. And that throws us off when we start thinking that it is. That begins to mess us up when we start thinking that it is. Philippians 3.20 says this, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that here in the United States, on planet Earth, in Texas, we are resident aliens. We're involved in the culture based on what we think is best for the culture, not based on what we think is best for us. Not how the culture can serve us, but how we can serve the culture. See, the culture is not our master, and we're not dependent on it. The government, the nationality, none of that is our master. We're not dependent on any of that. As an American, as a patriot, I was telling a friend, a guy yesterday I was kind of discussing with who's from Germany, I said, as a patriot, as an American, I grieve at the drift of our country right now. I grieve as an American, as a patriot, it breaks my heart to become a post-Christian nation. As a Christian, it has no impact on my Christianity if America does that. None. As a Christian, I don't grieve that. It's just the nature of the world. As an American, it breaks my heart. I'm very sad for the sacrifice that, that will somehow be lost. But as a Christian, understand, in, in fact, I, what I want to do is I want to take a second. I want, I've stolen a concept, just flat stolen it. This, um, this, this is something that, and, and I'll explain who in just a second. So I, as we were down there speaking, a few of them were family camp speakers from Pine Cove, family camp people from Pine Cove. And it was kind of funny, they, they know I a, was a family camp speaker at Pine Cove, so it was a kind of a funny moment when we're sitting there at the table and a couple of them start talking about, well, we wanted to go to the website because we're going to be here this week and we really wanted a certain person to be our speaker that week, right? We really wanted a certain person to be the speaker that week, so we really looked to see if Tony Evans was our speaker. And, and here's the thing, I mean, I, I really thought, I really did at one point think that maybe they were like trying to be encouraging to me, but here's... But when the other option is Tony Evans, you kind of go like, well, yeah, I mean, that's who I would want it to be too. Like I would, I would go with Tony anytime. And so one of the most gifted speakers alive today, well, well, Tony Evans, a few years ago, and I think one of the first times he ever delivered 
this concept was actually at Brookhill when he spoke a few years ago at Brookhill. And now he talks about a lot. If you're going to the men's conference at Pine Cove, um, and we have a certain number of tickets and stuff like that to go, um, I suspect he will talk through this, and his will be better than, than what I'm about to explain. But here, here's the idea he created. And I think this is super sound for us when we talk about unity, is that there is a, what we think about, <coughs> and the timing of this is perfect, we think about a football game. And we think about the fact that there are two teams on the football field. You've got, say, you know, hypothetically, the Cowboys and the Seahawks, okay? And so you, you, you have these two teams, and the Cowboys are there. Why are, why are, what are the, what's the goal of the Cowboys? What are they trying to accomplish? They want to they win. They want to get the most points, and they want to win, right? That's, that's their goal. To win in the name of the Cowboys, that's their goal. Then you have this other group, the Seahawks, and, and their, their goal, their job is to win. They want to win. So that's, that's the two teams. And they're going to do whatever they can to win in this competition between each other. But the mistake, Dr. Evans says, is that, says we make is that we think there's only two teams on the field, but there's a third team, the officials. The officials are a third team. They're an independent team. You can't think of them as part of either one of those other two teams. Do they work for the Cowboys? No. Do they work for the Seahawks? No. <laughs> they better not, right? That's not how that's supposed to work. So this is important. They have their own separate goals for the game. Completely independent of either of the two teams that are playing. They have their own guidebook that is different. They don't have the same guidebook that the coach on each side has. They don't have the same guidebook. They don't have the same goals. They don't have the same bosses. They report to a totally different headquarters than the, this team or this team. They have a different boss. They have a different headquarters. They have a different handbook. They have a different guidebook. They have different goals. They are a totally independent third team. They must never, they must always stand between the two teams. No matter how big they are, no matter how scary they are, no matter how angry they are, next picture, right? They do not work for either coach. They don't work for either team. And listen, the minute they do, they lose their authority. They have no value to the field. The minute that they join one team or the other, and listen, sometimes their teams are happy with them, right? The one team is like, yeah, yeah, we're happy with you because you, you made a call that's on our side. And the referees are going, that's not why I made it. I didn't make it because it was your side. I don't care whether it supports your side or not. I answer to somebody else. But the teams are always trying to get, have you noticed how helpful the players are and the coaches? They're so helpful to the refs, right? They're always pointing when the other team does something wrong. They're always like, no, no, really, it wasn't me. Like it's a, they're, just, they're just being helpful, right? The same goals as the refs, wrong. And the minute the refs think that the players have the same goal they do, the, the, the refs lose all their power. They don't work for this team, and they don't work for this team. They have an independent, they have an independent team. They have independent goals. And here's the thing. Here's one of the wild things that Dr. Evans pointed out, is that, is that on the field, the players seem to have all the power. Next picture. They tower over the referees. These are huge, powerful men. And somehow, even though these players have all this power, these referees have all this authority. But their authority comes from someplace else. 
not from this team and not from this team. The minute that they begin to join either team, the minute they begin to identify with either team, and here's what's wild, of course the refs probably care who wins. They probably have a preference for who they want to win. They probably like one team better than the other. They probably agree with the way one team coaches or plays or something better than the other. That's great. They still don't work for that team. They cannot ever begin to work for that team. They're always independent. They're always set apart. They're always called out. When Jesus uses the term ecclesia in Matthew for the first time, when he's sitting down with his disciples, his young disciples, and they're in the Decapolis, and they're at the, probably at the, in, in the, just the, the worship of all these false gods. I mean, this is kind of the dark center of idol worship in Israel at that time was in Caesarea Philippi. And he's, he's sitting there with them, surrounded by these idols, probably thousands of people worshiping these idols in different ways. And he says, who do you say that I am? Now, who do people say that I am is what he asked first. And they threw all these different answers, prophet, uh, Elijah, John the Baptist. He goes, okay, but who do you say that I am? Remember, he's standing in front of a statue to Zeus and a temple to Pan. Who do you say that I am? And the apostle Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that it, that's it right there. That's the rock on which I will build my church. We are not unified by our politics. We're not unified by which team we support. We're not unified by what we choose for pizza toppings. We're not, we're not unified by any of that kind of stuff. We are unified by this. We agree with this statement. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that may be all that unifies us, and that's all that has to unify us. That right there. We are not uniform in regards to the rest of it. We are independent. We stand apart. Sometimes the Republicans are going to be happy with us because we seem to agree with them. And sometimes the Democrats are going to be happy with us because we seem to agree with them. Understand, they have their own agendas, and it's not the church's agenda. And the minute we join one team or the other, we lose our authority. We are independent of them. We may, you, you may be a Republican. You may be a Democrat. That's okay, but neither one of them is your master. Only one Lord and Savior. That's how that works. So is it, is, does this stuff matter? Of course it matters. I love, that's why I love this analogy. Are the referees part of the game? Of course they are. Do they impact the game? Of course they do. But they have their own set of agenda, their own set of rules that is independent from either side, from either party. That's us. We are independent. We answer to someone higher. We answer to, someone, to something else. We have our own handbook. It's not this platform. It's not this platform. In the church, one of the things we're going to continue to be facing is this political divide. And this political divide, if it infects the church, if we can't love each other because we, believe we have different political views, then apparently we serve that not him. And that's uncalled for. We can disagree. We can fight. We can not like each other's double chins and squeaky shoes. But we have to be unified in this. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the foundation and that's the cornerstone. That's the rock upon which he builds his church. I love that analogy. I mean, I was, the first time I heard him talk through it, I was like, yes, 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 yes. This is exactly what it means. When Jesus references that, this philosophical concept, the gates of hell are where the elders meet. The gates of the city is where the elders meet. The gates are where the elders of the world would meet. The gates of hell is where they would go and they would strategize. And it will not stand against his church. The gates of hell will not. 
The word there, a called out assembly. God has called us out. We're not with this team. We're not with that team. We are called out as an independent third team belonging to a different nation, a citizenship of a different kingdom. We live to serve the kingdom. Children, we are strangers in a strange land. This is not our home. First Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. The word there, he's using the word foreigners. Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. See, what happens is when we walk around in the midst of this world full of zombies, but we're alive, that seems important to them. Yeah, they're gonna try to destroy us the ones who don't see us as something they want to follow. But we, that's, that's just part of it. For us, we will say like, no, no, we are his light to the world. We are his city on a hill. We're his salt. Life for even lost people should be better because we exist in their lives. We represent him in that way. This is not our home. This is our consulate this is where we gather together, and this is where we come together. This is our embassy. This is the kingdom of heaven embassy. That's what a church building is. It's where his people, his citizens, come together and say, okay, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? What are the instructions from the handbook? That's, that's why we come here together. We. There's a, a we-ness to this that is so powerful. Um, uh, uh, Francis Chan uh, Francis Chan had a, uh, a sermon. So every, all preachers have to, at some point, have to discuss with their church about what it means to be a church, obviously. And so you can search any pastor and see their, their sermons on this if they're online. And Chan's had a really good one a few years ago. And, and, but what, was, what, I, what I thought was funny is he, he's a, he was a pastor in California at the time. And so he has this long buildup about the way he's going to teach something. Um, whereas for us, it's, it's, it's like commonplace. We're kind of like, well, yeah. So he, he builds this up when he talks about this idea of, um, let me read it. About the idea of Matthew 5. Um, I'm going to get to 1 Corinthians 5 here in a second. But in Matthew 5, when he talks about us being the light of the world, for example, Chan says, in, in the Greek, it's, it's kind of like this, and, and I you know, apologize we're here in California, but my friends from the South, like it would say like this, for you are the light of the world, but the you there is plural. So it would be like, y'all are the light of the world, right? So he gets, some, he gets some laughs from that with that, and then he goes, but it's even more than that. The, the language is more than that. It's each and all of you. So it's all y'all are the light of the world. Now we get that. All y'all are the light of the world. Each and all of us are the light of the world. We're, we are each individually a light, and together we are the light of the world. That's what it means to be his. We are his, for example, light. We are, we are his, uh, the, the, the ambassadors. We show who he is through our conduct. That's the idea. And mainly in the way we love each other, right? That's, that's part of the significance of loving each other. For example, when I just get to teach about marriage, it's on my mind, the idea of, of really loving each other in our marriages because that's such a powerful testimony 
I'm more and more convinced every time I say it that, that the reason we lose kids when they go off to college isn't because primarily because of the, the, the liberal professors or the, or the alcohol and the, and the drugs and all that kind of stuff. It's because their parents' marriage stinks. And because their parents' marriage is not a loving, intimate, sacrificial marriage where two people are seeking to grow and learn and love how to love each, each other better, that their, parent, their kids see that and the hypocrisy of that stands out to them. And the first time somebody offers them another option, they're gone. Well, I don't want that. I've said before, it wasn't until I was here at this church. So I've been doing premarital counseling for close to 20 years at that point. It wasn't until I was at this church that when I asked a couple in premarital counseling, do you know a marriage that you would like your marriage to be like? Do you know a marriage like that? This place was the first time I ever heard a kid, a, a, a kid like that say, my parents. It's happened twice here. Taylor Newberry and then I, one of the Carswell, girl, Carswell girls said, yeah, my parents. I think Taylor was the first one. The, I think I told y'all that was the first time I had ever heard that. And I was like stunned. And, and I didn't believe her either. I was like, no, no, it's, you're allowed to, listen, I, just because I know your dad, you can... <laughs> You can tell the truth. I won't think any differently of him. She was like, no, seriously. Like, it's not perfect, but I would love for my marriage to be as good as theirs. But I was, I was like moved to tears with that. You, you never hear that. And of course you wouldn't always hear that because they see that marriage so well. They, all marriages are flawed and, and fail in some ways. But, but man, the thought that we would have such a good example of Christ's love, sacrificial love for his church and our marriages, that our kids would want their marriages. By the way, if, you're, if you don't want your kid's marriage to look like yours, then fix your marriage. I mean, that, wow. If you've already said like, yeah, our marriage is so bad, I wouldn't want my kids to be like mine. Like, well, then get to work. Because you, by the time they're done, you want it to be one of those. This is, a, um, this is a powerful testimony when we say, this is how we love one another. Look at how we love one another. And look at how we love other people because of that. That's a powerful testimony to people so that we can, we can see that. 1 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone away, the new is here, all is, this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Understand, we are his reconciliation in many ways. We are, that is the ministry that we have. Not counting people's sins against him as he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal to the world through us. We're his appeal to the world for him. We're his reconciliation, the forgiveness, the love. Those ministries are such an important part of what they see. I said in the, in the seminar this weekend... Ginger doesn't love me and put up with me and, and, and deal with me and hasn't done that for 25 years because I'm worth it. She does it because God has called her to it. That's, that's, the, that's the reason behind it. It's because of the ministry. Because she is part of his church. She follows his lead. It's why we, no human could earn that from any other human. But Christ can call us to do that. Christ can call us to sacrifice and learn. And we're willing to at least try. The idea of we, the fact that there's so many pictures of the church are, are plural things. First Peter, that, that we are stones in a temple. Well, one person is not a sufficient stone to be a temple. That we're a, the people of God. Well, it takes more than one person to be a people. That we're a nation of priests. 
Well, it takes more than one person to be a nation. This, there's a, a we-ness to this that is so important. The church only exists for the sake of the kingdom. We're not a people according to anybody else but Christ. Nothing else has to unite us. We encourage each other. We disciple each other. We invest in each other. We work together to do what we ought to spend our time doing, investing together. See, we come together even on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whatever, not because we have everything in common. Even, even our theological views are different about many things. But fundamentally, the basic concepts, especially that stone, the one that gets Peter the name Peter, Petros, stone, on this rock I will build my church, I believe is the confession that, that Peter makes there. That's, that's the idea. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what makes this gathering special. That's what unifies us. Nothing else is required to unify us but the basic doctrine of following Jesus Christ. That's what's required. Everything else is allowed to not unify us. Now, you can be wrong. I can be wrong. That doesn't mean we have to agree with each other. It doesn't mean that we have to think everybody's right. I can think you're completely wrong. You can be completely wrong. But you have to be, we have to be unified on this. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what it means to be his invisible church. That's what unified, that's what we means, is we live that life. I found an interesting statistic. I didn't mention this in the first service. An interesting statistic preparing for the seminar this weekend. And that's this. Um, so you've probably all heard that, um, that Christian marriages, people who claim to be Christian or even claim to be born again, um, that, their marriage, that our marriages have the same divorce rates and infidelity rates as people within the world. And that is apparently true. However, here's a wild statistic. People who claim to be active Protestant believers, but who nominally live the Christian life. They don't go to church, they're not involved in mission, they don't serve, that kind of stuff, are 20% more likely than non-believers to get divorced. Nominal only Christians, people who claim to be Christians, but who do not take their walk seriously, they do not live out their walk, are 20% more likely to get divorced than secular people. But people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ in the Protestant movement, so Protestant Christians who are actively engaged, who attend a gathering of believers, who serve, who minister, who go on mission, are 38% less likely to get divorced. No other single factor the sociologists found had anything like that much effect than this. Do you take your faith seriously, especially as a Protestant? If you're a Protestant and you take your faith seriously and you live according to the gospel, you are, it is by far the most likely thing to protect your marriage. It is the most likely, and there was nothing else was even close. Almost everything else was non-significant differences but that one thing, 38%. So claiming something doesn't protect you. Living something protects you. That should not be a surprise to us who are studying the book of John. Right? We, together. All right. I want to close out with this thought, with these passages as we close out in prayer. Acts 2, 42 to 47 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We look to this verse when we talk about churches. Even though the actual, the literal technical application has changed in the last 2,000 years in many ways, the concepts here, the principles here, the morality here of generosity, of sharing, of supporting, of encouraging, of learning, of worshiping, of experiencing God together has not. A first century church did it a certain way. We're a different century. We have to do it a little bit different way, but the fundamentals have to be the same. What are we supposed to be doing? Matthew 28, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded all y'all. And behold, I am with all y'all always to the end of the age. That's us. This is what we do. This mission is what unites us. It's what unifies us. Our roles within that mission are not uniform. They are harmonious. But living that out, that's what unites us. I pray it continues to. And as we see a further and further divided nation, if that's what we see, may the church become more and more clearly unified. At least this church. But let's pray that the church becomes more and more unified under our handbook, under our master, not bending the knee to any other Lord but the Lord of Lords. Let's pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you that you have set us apart, that you have called us out as an assembly of people, um, that though we are in the game, we are not of the game. Though we are in the world, we are not of the world. Father, though we're here and we walk around and we're citizens of this nation or another nation, Fundamentally, the truth is we have a citizenship in your kingdom, and that's more important than all the others. Everything else in our lives must fall subservient to our devotion to you. Lord, teach us to seek first your kingdom and let you take care of the rest of it. God, I thank you that these are men and women who I can love and learn with and disciple and be discipled by, that these are, we, these are people we can gather and worship together and we can rejoice together and we can grieve together, and we can serve each other and sacrifice for each other, that we can love each other and love each other's children and teach each other's families. Father, I thank you for the love and patience and perseverance that you represent here. Thank you that we get to be a living spring of water um, in all the lives that we impact, and I pray that we would do so according to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would live out that calling with which we've been given. In his name, amen.